we are going to be jumping back into um, the book of Mark, beginning in chapter 9. For the church crowd, this will be a familiar story to you. I hope to uh, make some sense of it this evening. Help us to leave here changed. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer this evening. God, we are humbled that you have called us to yourself, that you have made a relationship with you possible through the death and resurrection of your son. We are encouraged that you are present in this place, that you have care and concern and compassion for us wherever we might be. God, we ask that for those in the room that are nursing wounds, that you would be present in, in such a way that they cannot deny who you are and what you're doing in their lives. God, for those that are in this room that are thankful for the gifts and the blessings that you have given to them, we ask that we would be truly humbled and grateful for the work of you in our lives. God, for the next few minutes, we ask that you would bring clarity, that you would bring illumination, that you would bring a move of your spirit, and that we would leave here changed for you, that you would mold us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus that you would keep us from error, that you would guide us into truth and conviction and challenge, that you would help us to reflect on the things that you are doing in our lives right now and the things that you have already done in the past. God, we ask that this service would be yours, that our hearts would be soft to whatever it is that you have for us and that we would be willing to leave here changed for you. We ask these things all in Jesus' name, amen. When I was 10 years old, 
Camden Yards opened its gates for the very first time. When I was 10 years old, I was a baseball nut. I had a rubber ball and a glove and a bat, and every day after school, it seemed, I would go outside and I would play baseball by myself. Now, there was three different things that I could do to play baseball by myself, because that sounds odd, but this is how it happened. My dad was a pig farmer, and he would have these big cylinders where he stored corn, and he had... uh, lots of stones out there so he could drive his tractors or whatever. So I'd take my rubber ball and I'd throw it against the the bin and then I'd field it. And I'd pretend as I was doing this that that was me making plays at second base or at shortstop and I would have these little lineup cards. Yes, I would make lineup cards and I would go down the batting order and I'd be like playing shortstop while Daryl Strawberry was batting. It was intense, Kevin, it was intense. If I wanted to not hone in on my skills as a middle infielder, I would go over to the side yard where we had a little, um, it was like a, a shed, we called it a meat house. It was like old school farm time where people would take their meat out there to cure, as I'm sure you're all aware. Um, so I had a tennis ball for that one, and what I would do is I would throw it up onto the roof and it would hit the lip and it would bounce up and then it would hit the lip off again. So I would start from about, about right here and throw it to the to the balcony there, and then I would time it so I could run in and then dive or slide or whatever, and I would go down, down my lineup card again, and I would try to get people out. And if that wasn't good, if I wanted to hone in on my, my offensive skills, what I would do is I would go over to the other side yard where we had a white picket fence around, and I would just pretend that I was batting, I'd throw the ball up to myself, and I'd hit it, I'd go through the lineup again, and Josh James was always the star of this team, folks. He was always driving in runs and just being a stud. Um, But that's how I would play baseball. But I remember, for me, baseball was fun, and it was um, something that I did every day. But it kind of changed for me. When we drove our car up to Candom Yards, and you know, you, you, you give the guy your ticket, and you walk through, and then as you're going into your seat, you walk through that tunnel, and you can hear the crack of the bat. You can see that green grass. And then you walk out there until you see this pristine field that's just sitting there with all these guys that live on my lineup card every afternoon are playing baseball for a living. Being in this setting completely changed my outlook on the game of baseball and on these people and on my afternoon hobby. Another story that's a little bit more embarrassing than me throwing rubber balls off of a a corn bin or throwing a tennis ball off of a meat house, that's all weird enough, but When I was in high school, the very first concert that I ever went to, the church, old school Christians, let me hear a a big amen when I say this, the very first concert that I went to was the Newsboys. And the Newsboys, for years, they had this bit where their drummer would sit on a platform and it would start rotating and people would start going nuts, like, no, he's spinning, he is spinning playing the drums. And be like, that wasn't enough. So then they'd start cranking it and tilt it and be like, whoa, he's upside down drumming. It was great. He wasn't doing anything really notable. It was just the fact that he was upside down and you had all the Christians there with their free hugs t-shirt and it was great. I mean, it was like a great time in the Lord. But like, even watching the Newsboys, um, it changed my perspective on, on music because once that bass drum gets going and it just starts like pulsating your chest, you guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you feel this at headquarters when it's just like that bass or the bass line just kind of, it gets in you, you know? And it completely changed how I viewed music. That whole week, this will, this will date myself. This was pre-Spotify, pre-YouTube. It was pretty much pre-computer because what I did for the rest of the week was I'd go home to my parents' dial-up internet computer and I would try to find on 
I believe it was called the Real Player G4. It was this old, bunkified music player, and you'd try to find like these bootlegged versions of songs. It was like Napster, sort of. But I would try to find live versions of Newsboys songs so I could relive that moment. Seeing them in this arena, I think it was the Civic Center. I'm sorry, I'm letting you down, I know that. But like, it changed how I viewed music. Seeing them here, it added a new perspective. It added something that, was, that enriched my vision of what was going on so that it wasn't good enough just to throw in a CD and listen to the music anymore. You wanted to recreate that moment. It'll be two years in January when Kate and I welcomed our son Abram into the world. You know, like all those books that you read, what to expect when you're expecting, and like, you know, you have all those books and everything's going great. It really can't prepare you for the flood of emotions and terror and gratefulness and humility that takes place in a moment like this. Everything about Kate and I's relationship changed in this moment, and everything that I thought I knew, this is gonna sound really sappy, just stick with me. Everything that I thought I knew about love was completely altered when I was holding my son in his sweet striped cardigan sweater, I might add, okay? But like, it was, it was all so different. There was layers of um, just emotions, but layers of, of feelings that I had never had before. And it didn't all happen at once, it was just kind of this development over time where my vision became expanded and my outlook on the world was changed because of Abe. I wanna throw this into the mix too. The same thing happened with Kate. It's one thing to, to date a pretty girl and then to marry her and to have great memories and experiences together. It's another thing to see the warrior princess in the hospital birthing your child. Just let that sit there and someday you can, you can take it and apply that to your own, your own circumstance. But for us, it was like, I had never seen Kate in such a way and our relationship was completely changed because of that moment. We receive from moments like this and it can be, it can be a lot of different things for different people. It doesn't have to be marriage and kids. For some of you, it's somebody comes up and says to you for the very first time, your ears hear, I believe in you. For the first time, your ears hear, you have worth and you have purpose. For the first time, your ears hear, you are beautiful and you are loved and you are special. There are these moments in life where you're, you're, you're gaining a new vision, a new understanding, a new appreciation of what's happening. For the disciples in this moment, for Peter, James, and John, as they ascend this hill with Jesus, and they see the things that they see when they see Elijah and Moses and Jesus shining like a crazy lantern. It gives them a new vision, a new understanding, a new appreciation. It changes who they are from the very inside out. This moment for them was one of those benchmark moments that they didn't even quite understand as it was happening. This was something that gave them perspective and gave them something different to confirm the ideas that they had about who Jesus actually 
was. Set within this context, we've seen that we're in this new act in the book of Mark, which begins with the story of Jesus healing a blind man in 8, 22 through 26. And this is a story that Tim referenced in his spoken word where the first time that Jesus places his hands on this man's eyes, it doesn't become all clear. He doesn't regain his sight immediately. It takes another try for Jesus to touch his eyes again. The first time, everything's fuzzy and blurry, and he doesn't see everything. He says, I think I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And then it took Jesus another time to give him clear vision. This story seems to be a symbol for what Jesus is doing for his disciples. In a sense, what Jesus is doing is teaching them to recognize who he is. So in between this frame of Jesus healing someone in 8, 22 through 26, and then Jesus healing another blind man in the later verses of chapter 10, all of this teaching in between is Jesus trying to instill into his disciples, his main three guys, this is who I am. Keep your eyes open and keep your hearts open and pick something up here because as we end up in Jerusalem and as I end up on a cross and as I end up giving up my life for all of you, this is going to be something that's very, very, very important for you to understand. It's this benchmark moment that they have to look back to and say, I can understand something about who Jesus is because of this experience that I've had with him. In this particular story, what happens here is we're learning to recognize who Jesus is through Mark's specific lens of this retelling, and he is looking to echoes of the past. For any person who's reading this story in the first century or hearing this story in the first century, all of the things that were happening would have clued them into, well, I've heard this before. This sounds really familiar. Jesus is kind of doing things that we're expecting him to do because it, it seems like this has already been done in the past. I wanna walk us through some of these things, but before I do that, I wanna just begin by pointing out one really odd feature in this story. It begins after six days. This is strange for Mark because he doesn't usually give us these temporal indicators like this. So for many commentators and scholars, they say, this is important. Why is he saying after six days? That seems to be strange. And what they're doing is they want to link this story with what has immediately preceded it. Jesus has just told his disciples, I'm going to die. After three days, I'm gonna rise, and that's gonna be all good, and they, they couldn't quite accept that, and then he launches into this teaching about discipleship. He launches into this teaching that says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross. You need to follow me. He launches into the expectations that he has of his people, but at the very end of this passage, he, he gives us this enigmatic saying that doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. He says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This doesn't really make sense in what Jesus is talking about at the moment. So when Mark says after six days, he's taking this story and linking it with what's going on here and saying that what the disciples see on top of this mountain with Jesus and Elijah and Moses, this is a vision of the kingdom of God coming with power. This is a moment that they will have ingrained in their very being that will help them continue on. This is a moment that whether it happens that persecution faces them, whether doubts or questions or suffering happens, they can look back here and remember the moment 
where Jesus reveals himself with power, where Jesus reveals the kingdom, the thing that he's been talking about this entire book, the very first thing that he says in this story is, the kingdom of God is here. It's now, it's happening with me. Watch all the cool stuff that I do. Listen to all the teachings that I tell you where the world is changing because of who I am and what I'm about to do for you. The author of Mark is linking this story with the one that we're looking at right now. But for an ancient audience, they wouldn't have just linked those two stories. They also would have heard six days. And as they continued, they would have heard something about a mountain. And as they continued, at the end of this passage, it says, then a cloud appears and covered them, and a voice comes out of the cloud. And for an ancient reader, they would have been raising flags all over the place to say, this is what Moses has already done. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses, who is like one of the founders of Judaism. He's one of the, the founding fathers of Israel's faith at this time. He is the guy who has taken Israel out of slavery and captivity and submission and led them through the Red Sea into freedom and life. He's also the guy that ascends the mountain to get God's law, which is really important at this time. It says in Exodus 24, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. This story of what's happening to Jesus here, this transfiguration for an ancient reader, they wouldn't have just said, oh, that's neat, Jesus is glowing, and there's two dead people there with him. They would have heard resonances of the stories of their faith, the stories that had sustained them for years and years and years. And here is Jesus being Moses. There's also this weird bit where it says that Jesus is transfigured or transformed. He takes on a new character. He looks different. In particular, in the story, it says that he, his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This, for an ancient audience, would have also brought them back to the same figure of Moses, where it says in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Sinai, when Moses came down from communing with God, from receiving God's law, it says he's got the two tablets of the covenant in his hands. He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Moses' character changes. He, in a sense, is transfigured, so much so that he has to put a veil over his head. For an ancient audience, they would have heard these notes of the past and scratched their heads and said, wait a second. We've heard this story before, but the characters are different. We've heard about people ascending a mountain to, to have this interaction with God and their character being changed, and now Jesus is the one who is doing that. In this story, it's also strange because it says, and there appeared before him uh, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. This is a sign not just for Jesus. This is a sign for the disciples who are there witnessing the event. This seems as though this is something that is going to be a landmark for them going forward. They're seeing Jesus illuminated. They're seeing Moses and Elijah, who are these two pillars of their faith, right in front of them. These guys have been dead for, Moses has been dead for 1,400 years or so, and Elijah probably about 1,000 years or so. This is very strange stuff 
to have these two people showing up, but for an ancient audience, they would have heard certain things. Some people have said that the reason why Elijah and Moses are present on the mountain at this time is because they represent the law and they represent the prophets. Moses being the one who ascends to Sinai and gives the tablets of the law what God wants his people to do or to not to do, and Moses is representing the law. And Elijah was a prophet. He did really cool things where he healed people and he fed people. He represents that prophetic activity. And Jesus is here standing in between the law and the prophets and bringing them all to fulfillment. That's not necessarily the best reading. Other people have said that both Moses and Elijah were faithful servants who suffered due to their obedience. Uh, That might not be the best reading either. Some people say that neither of them saw death. We have within the Bible Moses dying, but some people have said he actually didn't die. He was so humble that he didn't want people to know that he was taken into the heavens. That's that's a Jewish interpretation that that doesn't have a lot of force behind it, but they they neither saw, neither one of them saw death, which would make sense because Jesus uh, in his life resurrects from the dead and, and kind of fits in with that motif. Uh, But that's probably not the best reading either. Some people say that both experience theophanies, which means God shows up on the mountain. Elijah, it happened to him, it happened to Moses, and now we have Jesus who is having this moment with God as well on top of the mountain. But for an ancient audience, they would have heard maybe some of this stuff and said, yeah, that's nice, but the real important bit is this. At the end, it says in Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be a prophet like Moses who shows up. And it's interesting here because it says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's like Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. When God shows up in the cloud and says, this is my son, listen to him. For an ancient audience, they would have been putting these things together. They also would have noticed that Elijah is there, and the disciples cue in on this, but in Malachi chapter four, it says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. At the end, Elijah, who has been dead for a long time, will show up, and that will be a signal to you that I am bringing everything to its climax to its culmination. For an ancient audience, they would have seen Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and they would have heard all these things as if the story is coming to its end. N.T. Wright says, this is a sign of Jesus being entirely caught up with, bathed in the love, the power, and the kingdom of God so that it transforms his whole being with light in the way that music transforms words that are sung. This is the sign that Jesus is not just indulging in fantasies about God's kingdom, but that he is speaking and doing the truth. It's a sign that he is indeed the true prophet, the true Messiah. This story, again, and you've heard me say this over and over, it's not just a party trick that Jesus is doing. It is something that has force and significance to demonstrate to these people what is happening. Namely, God is bringing this story to its conclusion And Jesus is the one who is taking us there. The disciples receive in this moment a new vision, a new understanding, and a new appreciation, even though they don't really get it. They're seeing Jesus in a new light, and that is demonstrating to them something that will be important as they go on. So we've seen how in the past there are these these moments where uh, 
the author of Mark is trying to get us to cue into Israel's past. Jesus is the better Moses or the better Elijah. He's taking these two characters and he is superseding them in a sense. This is important because Peter really botches this up. He says, let's make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, as if they're all the same. But the, the subtle point is they are not all the same. After the, the God ends his, his talk, this is my son, listen to him, Moses and Elijah disappear and the author of Mark says, and only Jesus is left. It's significant because he's the one who is unique in his power and in his authority. Jesus is the better Moses, the better Elijah. Jesus is the culmination of this story that the Jewish people had been waiting for centuries and centuries and centuries for it to come to its end. These prophecies about a prophet like Moses and these prophecies about Elijah showing up at the end were, had, had been the, the source of hope for people for quite some time, and now Jesus, in front of these three people, he's demonstrating himself to be the one who is going to bring this story to its conclusion. This is my son. Listen to him. It's interesting that in this story, the, the words that are used here is, this is my son. God is not speaking to Jesus Earlier on in, in Mark, he speaks to Jesus at the baptism. You are my son. In you, I am well pleased. In this story, it's to the disciples. This is my son. Get it. Understand who he is and what he is doing because that is going to mean everything to you going forward. It's not just about the past, though. It also gives us something to to hang our hats on for the future. This story demonstrates to us what Jesus was about to do, which has been the burden of his talk over the last few verses. He is shifting his focus from just doing these miracles and teaching to now he's starting to talk with force to his disciples, I'm going to die. And if you look at these two stories together, uh, you can see hints of the crucifixion within the story of the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, there's an unearthly light, but when Jesus dies, there's supernatural darkness. These stories are almost polar opposites. In the story of the transfiguration, Jesus is wearing glorious clothes, but at the crucifixion, his clothes are stripped and he is made a mockery of. In the transfiguration, Elijah and Moses show up, these two pillars of the Israelite faith, but at the crucifixion, Jesus is flanked on either side by two criminals. In the transfiguration, Peter says, it's good for us to be here with you, to be present, but at the crucifixion, Peter has left. He is out somewhere denying Jesus, and there's one throwaway line in a gospel, I forget which one, but after he denies Jesus for the third time, it says Jesus turns his head and catches eyes with Peter, and Peter weeps bitterly. At the transfiguration, it's good that we're here, but a few chapters later, I don't want to be here because of what might happen to me. In the transfiguration, the divine voice says, this is my son, but at the crucifixion, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, in the moment of silence where God seems to be absent, why have you forsaken me? We have these two mirror images that are, that are so different where the transfiguration is Jesus in his glory and it's like giving us this foretaste of who he is. He's the king and he's going to rise from the dead and make everything whole again. But in the crucifixion, it is dark and the silence is palpable 
and it seems as though God has abandoned his own son. There are these hints in the the transfiguration of what is to come, and for an ancient reader, they might have tapped in to some of this. We see echoes of the past where Jesus is a better Moses, a better Elijah. We see hints towards the crucifixion where Jesus is heading to the cross. That's his whole mission for the next eight chapters, to take the sins of the world on his back and carry them to the cross and bury them. We can see these notes of where the story is headed, but it doesn't end on Friday. These traces of what the transfiguration means for us, it also hints towards resurrection and it hints towards hope. Specifically, as Jesus continues to come back to this thing where he says, I'm going to die, but in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. They didn't quite get what was happening in that moment. They didn't quite understand. They didn't have the framework for what that meant. At the time, they had this general idea of resurrection. Yeah, at some point, we're all going to rise from the dead. But when Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead, it was something that was totally and utterly different. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one that will pave the way for you. In my suffering and in my resurrection, I am the one who is allowing you to see where this story, where your story is going. We receive from this story a new vision, a new appreciation, a new understanding of who Jesus is. When Abe first showed up, some of my first thoughts were, what the heck do we do now? So you you get home and you've got this little bassinet thing and you you just don't know what you're doing at all and a little child just feels completely awkward. It has changed everything about who you are and and what you think about love and about um, protecting your family and about being someone they can count on. But now, my vision has completely changed each and every day. It's like you go from holding this little blob that doesn't do a whole lot and is fully dependent on you to now Whenever I come home, Abe says, Daddy, and he runs up, and he hugs you, and he says, Daddy, love you, and he says these really cool things where he's starting to connect, and I'll tell you, when he starts to do that, everything changes. Kate and I's first date was at Barnes & Noble. I went to the, to, uh, the classics section, uh, probably to impress her, and I picked out a John Steinbeck novel. And I sat down and I started leafing through it because we didn't ride together. That would have been too overt. We just met there at the same time. And I'm reading my John Steinbeck novel and she shows up and we have coffee and it's super awkward because that's who I am. You know this about me. We have come a long way from that first Barnes and Noble date to now where it's we're caring for this child and we're about to introduce another child into the world and our relationship has grown over time where we have, yes, a new vision and a new appreciation. That first night I went home and I had a new vision and a new appreciation, if you know what I'm saying. Can I get a big amen? Don't say amen to that. She's my wife. Watch it. Okay? Like you have this new vision and new appreciation, but it's radically different now, seven years in with a kid in tow and another one on the way. It's these, these moments where you can look back to these landmark events in your life. And for the disciples, this was one of those events. But it didn't stop there. 
This was something that gave them new vision and new understanding the farther and the farther they went in their own story. Joel Marcus says the early readers of Mark may be called on to follow Jesus to death because this is what Jesus says, pick up your cross and carry it is an image for you're going to die. So when Jesus calls on them for that, this story provides some hope because it says, but even as they do so, he will be with them and the glory that once displayed that he once displayed on the mountain will break forth for them time and again, even at moments when they are so frightened that they do not know what to do. This event was not just a, hey, this is who Jesus is. This was an event in their life that completely shaped them going forward where they could look back and all of the new experiences and the new things that they were in the middle of at that moment would give them new understanding, new vision, new appreciation. So here's the question. For you, what are the moments that are supplying you with new vision, with new understanding, with new appreciation? For the disciples, they had all these moments where they could see, they could look back and remember his teachings and they could see the miracles and they could see this moment where Jesus is shining and showing a a prefigurement of what he would do in defeating death. And for us, I wonder if some of those images have faded. For us, I wonder if some of our stories about the time when we got saved back here or the time when we had this mountaintop moment experience at this retreat or at this camp or the time when this person said this to me and put me on this path, I wonder if some of those moments have kind of got lost in the shuffle of life and busyness and suffering and death, and heartache. I wonder what it would look like for us tonight to receive new vision and new understanding and new appreciation as we begin to understand who Jesus actually is. He's not this ghost-like figure that just kind of came and went. He's this guy that knows exactly what you are going through. He's this person that can, can relate to what it feels like to be alone, who can relate to what it feels like to be hurting, who can relate to what it feels like to be tempted and tried, who knows what your pain feels like. But I hope that as we're there, we don't forget how he, even through all of that, has been with us And he has shown us these glimpses of what is to come. The Christian faith, in a very, very uh, simplistic summary, is the fact, the truth, that we are sinful people that are fully and utterly dependent upon a Savior who loves us and who cares for us and who has borne our own sinfulness, paid for it, buried it. And when we trust in him and when we trust in those moments, not just of death, but of glorious resurrection, and when we see those seeds of hope in our own lives, and we, when we begin to partner with Jesus and live a life that looks like the gospel, that looks like the good news, that looks like loving your neighbor and praying for those who persecute you, and it looks like forgiving people that don't deserve your forgiveness, and it looks like trusting in the midst of silence and suffering. When that's where we are, I believe that we provide an image 
that people can see and begin to accept this truth that God might just be real and that God might just care about me. It's my hope tonight that we can, in our own individual lives, begin to look back to these moments where we've placed flags in the ground, the transfiguration-type moments where we have understood who Jesus is, but we've moved on from those and we've planted other flags in the ground along the way. And we have gained new vision, new understanding, and new appreciation of Jesus, and we haven't left it there. We actually begin to live it out and provide a compelling witness for the world around us who needs to hear hope, who needs to hear forgiveness and love, who needs to hear Jesus is present and loving and wants to be invested in your life.